Wow. I don't know who that guy is, but he sounds great. Thank you, Matt. That's really kind. Actually, the, um, the opening story we tell in the book about the children took place in Matt's house, and we had to ring him, ring him to tell him that it had happened in his house because we felt he might not be that impressed when he found out all of the things that we'd done in his home without him realizing. The opening chapter is all about our kid, just a shocker of a day we had. My son's running out into the street, leaving the door open, the dogs biting and barking. I'm vomiting in the bathroom. Anna, my daughter, who's at the time in the peak of sort of regressing, like going backwards, has got her face dipped in the fish tank just with the fish all swimming around while my dog, my son is picking up the kitchen knives and running around. It's quite a funny story now, but at the time it wasn't. And so when we'd written it, we just thought, actually, we better ring Matt just to say, yeah, this was in your... Because he'd recognise it. It would have been awful otherwise. So it's very gracious of you to be so kind. Um, and thank you very much for having me. I'm just... I'm really excited about being here. I, I tweeted that I'd never enjoyed writing a talk, or hadn't enjoyed writing a talk for years as much as uh, one of the ones I'm doing today. So I'm doing three sessions with you. Um, the first one's on why I am a reformed charismatic. The second one is on homosexuality. And the third one is on things that amaze me most about God, which I think is quite diverse. Um, and, you know, theology, gays, gods, it's like, let's, let's just kind of cover the whole kit and caboodle. I don't know who came up with it, but it's probably him. Um, but I'm, I'm really grateful to be doing this. And um, so I'm gonna, we're going to start. I mean, I've got, there's lots I want to say that I hope will be helpful. So um, we're going to jump right in. Um, so when PJ said, I'd like you to speak session one on why I am a reformed charismatic, I thought, well, at the very beginning, I've got to at least admit that I'm not, at least in an important sense, um, that I'm in some ways. Some people would look at me and would look at those of you who own either or both of those labels and would say, you're not, you're not a reformed charismatic, right? You, I imagine most people here, if not all, baptized believers rather than infants, so you're not you're not actually Reformed. I don't know why you use that word. You can't use that word. Calvin was an infant Baptist, and so should you be, you fool. Um, you don't know what the word Reform means, and take the capital R off while you're at it, and all of that sort of thing. And similarly, he'd say, the, the Reformers would have said, I'm an Anabaptist, probably, and a loon to boot. Um, and then in terms of the charismatic thing, in the 1970s, I think my, my there would just be a bit more controversial in this context probably, but my position on spirit baptism would mean that probably a lot of charismatics would say, well, you're not a proper charismatic either. You just wrote a blog post this morning explaining why you've got all these concerns about Bethel. You're not a real charismatic and you're not really reformed, so shut up. Um, so I feel like I need to at least offer that disclaimer in a technical sense to people who care about what these things mean in a sort of nerdy way. Um, I'm, I'm neither reformed nor properly charismatic in that sense, but... But, uh, but I see myself as both, um, and I'm going to explain why. Um, I do see myself as a reformed charismatic, and I'll defend it as well. So I score 129 out of 130 on the Heidelberg Catechism, which means I am reformed all about from the bit about baptizing babies. Um, it's 129 of the questions, I say, that's exactly what I believe. And on one of them, I say, uh -uh, and all the others. And they might have some infant Baptists in here, and I'm not sure, but... Um, so question 74 of the Heidelberg Catechism, I'm going, no. And all the others, I'm going, yes. So I am reformed in that sense, mostly. Um, and I believe that spiritual gifts, all spiritual gifts are available today, and not just available, but to be pursued and lived out. And I, I do my best not just to say that, but to try and do it as well. And I think you can, you can be a charismatic who believes the gifts are there, um, but doesn't really want to 
do very much about it. Um, you know, Terry Virgo is fond of saying, I'm open to the gifts. If I said to my wife, I'm open to having a sexual relationship with you, that would not be the most appropriate way of responding. You don't, you pursue things, you're not just open to them if you really <laughs> care about them. And uh, that's okay, yeah? Yeah, that's, he'd say the same thing, I'm sure. Um, and, uh, and so actually, I think, it, I, I think sometimes that you, people can use that label. In the States in particular, a lot of people would use a label like continuationist, which to me always sounds like it means, I believe the gifts continue, but I don't do that much about it. Whereas I think a charismatic is somebody who's saying, I believe they continue, and I pursue them and seek them and want more of them in, in my life and in my church. So I do see myself as reformed charismatic, despite the technical senses in which I'm not. Sorry, we're jumping straight into the... I can see some, some faces of people looking and grinning, going, who is this guy? This is, this is why we needed Matt's prolegomena. Um, so what I'm going to try and do is give seven reasons why that's true why I am, and these are in no way, well, that's not true. In some ways, they are attempted to persuade you that you should be too, but actually, in many ways, it's quite a, a personal explanation of how I've ended up uh, where I am. Seven reasons. There's some personal reasons, theological reasons, devotional reasons, exegetical reasons, historical reasons, pastoral reasons, and missional reasons. That's just for those of you who want to know, where, what roughly are these seven points? By the way, it's lovely preaching to Howard Kellett on the back row because the guy is like a child in a candy shop. He's like... <laughs> sitting at the back, just like this huge moon-like face of joy as he's being... I love it. How, he come, how he's one of the people who comes to the theological conference I run each summer, and it's just great having him in a setting like this. If no one else is interested, he will be. It's nice. So... so why, why are you a Reformed Charismatic? Seven reasons. And I'll have to start being honest with the personal reasons because I think often when people say, so why do you believe this? You don't want to be too sort of postmodern and ah-ha-ha about it, but actually you're often where you are theologically because of the church you were born into and how you got brought up. And that doesn't mean you reduce everything to your background, but I think if I'm honest... If I'd been born into many settings, I might be an Arminian cessationist. And in other settings, I might be a Pentecostal prosperity guy or a Roman Catholic or Orthodox priest. I don't know. But I actually, my personal story means that I was almost destined to be reformed, predestined to be reformed, charismatic. <laughs> uh, Self-referential humor is the only thing I got. Um, and and very, sort of actually bought, kind of almost by mistake born into it in the first few years of my life. So I was... I was um, born into St. Helens Bishopsgate, which is a uh, very reformed, probably, you know, it's a church that a few weeks ago put out a statement saying, uh, on, in some preaching training they did, that there were only about two dozen churches in the UK that still actually preached expository sermons. They're very sort of they're diehard reformed, we've got to get it all right. Dick Lucas, if you know that name, was a sort of rector at the time, so I was born into that church. My parents both got saved independently of each other in the 10 days before they got married, and they didn't tell each other. So they got married and then went on honeymoon and said, oh, by the way. <laughs> and then they were like, oh, really? Me too. That's great. Um, and, they, and they got saved in the St. Helens. They heard the gospel there. It was the fantastic gospel preaching church. So I, would have been, I was baptized as a baby into that church. Um, and so very, very, you start reformed, right, as a little baby. Uh, and then after, <laughs> well, you do. That's the thing. that you know, You're in the covenant now. Anyway, we're not going to go into the baptism, but that's how they do it. And then after about, um, so my first memory of church came about three, year, three or four years later when I was a you know, sort of little kid. My parents left St. Helens and they moved 
to what probably now would be described as a sort of loony, charismatic fringe commune in mid-Sussex, led by a guy called Colin Urquhart. Uh, many of you may know that name as well. Um, I say loony, not meaning that he is, but I think you would look at the early 80s expression of it now and say, whoa, those guys were intense. It was sell all your possessions, everybody pile into take over a village, everybody's in, you know, sort of in, in part revival, in part lunacy verging on, you know what I mean? That, that kind of very intense spiritual hothouse. Dick Lucas was preaching that the charismatic movement was the Colossian heresy at the time. So my parents were going from diehard reform to crazy charismatic in, the, in one, <laughs> no place for a pendulum. And then, as you might expect, they sort of normalized and swung back to an Anglican church and then swung into a New Frontiers church. And now they're back in sort of an Anglican church in a village now in their 60s. And, um, and I think that experience, actually, of seeing and hearing amazing stories of spiritual power just as a normal thing, always having people in your house... And knowing that, you know, it was the sort of, oh, here's a chicken, we thought you might like one. Oh, right, but your kidneys, shoes, don't they? It was that sort of a community. But also having had this very, my parents kind of really catechized with this very strong reform theology. I think it's a big part of why I'm both. And, um, and as I sort of have gone on, you know, you end up doing that swing. And then you, in the Anglican church, you just, whether you know you're absorbing it or not, you get drummed into this sort of, this liturgy, which at the time you think is just dead and dull. And as you go on, you think, that's still helping me pray now. Like, it's, it's weird. It, you know, at the time, you're just thinking, Almighty oh, God, our Heavenly Father. But actually, you go on, and you think, if I'm, if I'm confessing sin now, and I want to use words, and I, I, you've got Psalm 51, and you've got Cranmer, and, you, that, and that's, where you go, that's where I'm going to help me with those things. And so I've got this sense sort of quite rich liturgical experience that I hated. And then you sort of swing back and go into a, a sort of more New Frontiers context, but it was the... You know, it, that was sort of height of tambourine waving, dancing, woo, you know, kind of women with twirly dresses, sort of late 80s. Some of you were there. Um, and then, you know, all of that. And actually, just even personally, very strong prophetic direction in my own life as well, where um, I think, although as a person, I would probably gravitate much more towards the intellectual side and study side in terms of gift and personality, but my experience was so bound up with God breaking in and speaking in just bizarre and emphatic ways um, about... A great many things. I mean, when I, I was pitching my first, I had a, the first time I had an email from my editor pitch, pitching a book to me, um, it, an email had come in at about nine in the morning, and then I'd left to go to a, a sort of New Frontiers leaders event. Um, so got on the bus with all the other guys, or the minibus, all drove over to this thing. Julian Adams, who many of you know, is there, and Julian just is prophesying around the room and he just goes, I can see manuscripts and an editor's going to approach you and you should write the book that is in your heart to write. And I'm like, to this day, I don't think anyone else in that room had written a book. So it's not like he's picking on a random person, and they all had. And it was that morning, like an hour before I left, less than that, that I'd had this email. And it was just um, the, the other day. I know, the other, yeah, so six weeks ago, my son was born. And um, that, came, that came about prophetic. You have to be careful with these things at the time. But afterwards, you'd go back and say, that was, that was God speaking. Like, no, so... There's actually a very funny twist to the story as well, if you'll bear with me. Um, but in about February of last year, we were going along to a... There was a women's conference happening at Brighton. And so our, the lead guy in our church said, we're now going to have all the men pray for the women um, because we don't very often do that, but we think it'd be really good for the women to be blessed and so on. And there's a reason why we don't often do it, and you'll see what that is in a moment. Um, and the, so my wife is there. She's you know, being prayed for by these two quite serious 
quite intense guys, um, fantastic, men, you know, great guys, but quite on the more sort of take yourself reasonably seriously sort of end. Um, I think they'd probably say that too. They're both friends of mine. Um, and so they're, they're praying over her, and we have not told anybody, like not my parents, not her parents, nobody. But we're thinking, should we have a, a third child? Like we ruled it out because of our kids and autism and so on. But we thought, I think we might, be, maybe, maybe. But let's, I have no idea how it would work and not sure whether that's right. And Rachel's just asking God about it, and so am I, but we've not said anything to anybody. And she's there, and this thing, and this guy starts speaking just like, just the Lord says, uh, he has heard your Hannah's prayer, and he's going to confirm it to you this weekend in the present, with the words of two or three witnesses. So she goes, well, one, that's pretty cool. And two, I wonder what this will be like. Then she goes to the conference. She's talking to her sister and saying, I don't understand how it's... And we, we had this word. I don't understand how it will work because I feel like if we were to have a third child, we would also need a third adult in our home just to be able to make it work. The next morning, another friend of hers who doesn't think we should have a baby, it would be pretty clear if we'd suggested it, um, she thinks it would be unwise, comes up and says, I don't know why, but I had this word from God, I had this picture of you sitting in your kitchen with three children's chairs and three adults' chairs around the table. And so Rachel's going, Hannah's prayer. This is I think we should do it. And so we're just like, God's speaking. And so God has heard your Hannah's prayer. And Hannah, of course, named her baby Samuel, Shema'el, God hears. And so, so did we. And it was just amazing sense of the prophetic leading of God. Anyway, the funny bit of the story is that while this guy was doing it, and this is the bit that men don't pray for women, he's laying, they're laying hands on her, and she's like this. And he's going, Lord, we pray that you'd bless her this week. He's a really loud guy. Lord, we pray that you'd bless her this weekend. Oh, God, would you, like the woman with the oil as she filled up the jugs. Oh, Lord, God, fill up her jugs, Lord. <laughs> In a prayer about having a baby. And you're like, that's just magnificent. Um, and Sarah Rachel was saying, she's like, I was thinking of every, like, death in the... I was trying to think of something that would stop me from laughing. And she said at the, at the key moment, I could just feel a crack in his voice. He went, Philip, a jugs, Lord! As if this sort of slight awareness of what he'd said came in. So, anyway. And so I've just... I've, I'm, a lot of it is basically... It's for personal reasons, I've, but I've had a very... I've just been... I've made friends and read things that have just powerfully enforced in me the sense that you, you're going to love the, love the Word of God. It speaks, the gospel transforms people. The Bible is true. And I'm so grateful for that. But also mixed in with an experience, it's like God speaks now. And God doesn't just speak through the Bible. He speaks through other people and brothers and sisters who often don't even know what they're saying. And when he does, it breaks the whole situation open in a way often that Bible study would never have got you to. And that both of those two things together are just part of my personal journey. And anyway, I think that's, if I'm honest, probably the biggest reason why I am a Reformed charismatic. Um, second set of reasons would be theological reasons. So why I'm a Reformed charismatic, there would be theological reasons... And this is obviously from now on, they're things which these are a bit more accessible to everyone else, because whether it's your story or not. And I think reform, maybe the way I'd put this is I think reform charismatics uh, on both sides, on both counts, put the highest possible emphasis on the gift of God. So I think it's a historical anomaly, or at least to me, it's a strange turn of events that at least today, I would argue this wasn't always true, but today, Reformed Christians are much more likely to be cessationist and charismatic Christians are much more likely not to be reformed or to be Arminian or to be something else. I think that's strange because actually the, when you, if you were to push the reformers on what is the defining feature of your doctrine as against other strands of subsequent Christianity and 
Christianity before, I think they would often say something along the lines of, it is about the, the, the supremacy of the gift of God in Christ or the grace of God initiating everything. And that's really the defining feature of our, of our gospel. It's like, I think it was Warfield said that the Reformation was the triumph of Augustine's doctrine of grace over Augustine's doctrine of the church. It was like, basically, it's, this is a grace movement. This is a, a recognition that God's gift comes first. Charismatic theology is all about the gift of God doing something and enacting something and affecting things in people that they weren't expecting. It's a very strong emphasis on gift. It's saying, I, don't, I think often charismatics aren't charismatic enough because we sort of almost imply that by living a certain way or by using certain methods and formulas and praying certain ways and maybe reading certain books, going to conferences... We, we are able to access a sort of spiritual power. Charismatic theology in its proper form is just saying the gift of God comes to me. And I might not have your gift and you might not have mine, but together God has gifted the church. And because both strands, Reformed and Charismatic theology, are huge, they're all about gift everywhere. They're all about, in that sense, gift or grace. That I sort of think it's theologically consistent to be both. Because I think that to be a somebody who, who would push away from Charismatic theology or who would perhaps be cautious about it, Oh, yeah, the gifts are for now. I don't really want anything to do with that. To me, that would be inconsistent with the Reformed view of the gift of God. Because the Reformed theology is saying the gift of God is good. And without God's initiative and grace and gift to you, you can't do anything. So if you apply that to the gifts of God given in the Spirit, you'd say, if those gifts are for now, we should be pursuing them. Surely, if they're given by God, look at what he's, look outside, look at the gifts of God everywhere. If God has given it to me, every good and perfect gift comes from above, cascading down from the Father of lights, with whom there's no shadow due to change. So I've got to take hold of every gift he's got for me and pursue it. So I think there's a theological consistency to being reformed and charismatic before you've even looked, in a way, at the Bible and specific passages. Just our view of God as gift giver, I think, would take us to both of those places. Third kind of reasons, I suppose, would be devotional reasons. So I think when you're, uh, Matt talked about joy, I mean, jo- just, I was, I've been impacted by the sort of joy message coming in various different forms, actually. I mean, I first came across it in Piper and many others since, in a, often at a more charismatic end. But the, the need to fight for your own joy and the need for our, our personal walk with God being, you know, George Mueller, my first duty every morning is to get happy in God because until I am, I'm no use to anybody. And that sense of how do you do that? And I would say that, Reformed theology and charismatic theology and experience together bring about a double whammy in the pursuit of joy that I haven't found anywhere else. And the reason for that is, I suppose, the the Reformed side gives me a sense of security in in safety in my walk with God that I couldn't get from anywhere else. I don't think, in in a Catholic vision or an Orthodox vision or an Arminian vision, in my read of things, I don't have the same level of security, safety being held, because too much, there's too much that hinges on my decisions. Too much that hinges on, I'm not sure how this will pan out. And I know that in the best expressions of all of those theological traditions, they don't push that point too hard. But I, at at root, I am still, too much relies on me. In Reformed theology, as far as I'm aware, alone, there is an emphasis on the fact that the gift of God not only has come to you, but will preserve you. And so I've got safety there and security there. And that's not just an introspective thing. That's actually for the safety of the church. The sovereignty of God over all things means that nothing bad that afflicts the church will not ultimately have been used by God for her good. 
I've got the Joseph story, and I've got Paul in Romans 8, and I've got those sorts of images, really, of God saying, yeah, that was horrendous for you while you were there, but, and they meant it for evil, but God didn't. God used it, meant it for good. He didn't just look at it and go, oh, what am I going to do with this? He actually intended this process in order for many lives to be saved and nations to be fed. And because he did, I've got safety and security there on that side. But I've also, from the charisma, that gives me joy. I am okay. God has initiated to me. I didn't, it, the difference between me and an unbeliever is not that I went, oh, I see it, and he didn't, but that God did something to me. And because that's true, I've got a safety and security. But the charismatic side means that I've not just got security that might lead me to passivity. I've got friendship. I've got intimacy. I've got the, the powerful experience of crying out, Abba, Father, which reform guys will often believe but the sense of bouncing off the walls with excitement about it doesn't always characterize the, the life. In my experience, and, and you, those who are chuckling are probably going, yes, I can think of people, or I have been someone like that. And I think the, scent, the mixture of security and friendship together, or the mixture of, when you have corporate worship, which has richness and bounce at the same time, you know, liturgy and levity, raised hands, lowered faces. It's just a good combination, isn't it? It's just dancing in the aisles and angels in the architecture. I just, I love the mixture of being able to go, yeah, we are really, really happy about this in exuberant, demonstrative ways at the same time as being grounded and secure and stabilized by truths that even if we weren't, God would still love us and keep us going. And I just think that combination for devotional reasons is incredibly powerful. So, you know, when you use the different words in the New Testament for faith, you think actually that Charismatics with a strong emphasis, I guess, on belief and reformed with a strong emphasis on trust. You know, so we would, you take faith and you think it means belief and trust, doesn't it? Same, but same word. But you say, actually, charismatics, yeah, we believe God, we believe you can do it. And then trust people, we don't know what you're up to, but we trust you. And a reformed charismatic goes, I do both. I believe for breakthrough. And when you don't, I go, okay, I trust you anyway. I'm not saying other believers can't do that, of course. I just think that the fusion of Reformed Charismatic means that in devotional life, in prayer, I've got two huge kind of cannons on my side which come together in a beautiful way. Um, and I love that. So there's devotional reasons. Just left something over here a second. There's exegetical reasons as well. I think this is more when you go to specific texts and you expound them, and I'm not going to do that for, you know, in this context it wouldn't be the right thing to do just to go through all of the passages that I think will prove I'm right or anything. That's not, that's not the goal. Um, I think there's good reasons to do that. But I think pa passages around corporate worship, like when you go through 1 Corinthians 11 to 14, and you have, in some ways, quite a traditional, reformed view of corporate worship. Paul says, when you come together, twice in 1 Corinthians. And the reformed guys love one of them, and the charismatic guys love the other one. Um, and in fact, in my experience, when charismatics read it, that when you come together, they always say, when you come together, everyone has a psalm, a gift, right? They don't very often say, when you come together, and then he talks about the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians 11. They don't. So we, we have both. We have when you come together, we sit, we eat, we remember the cross, we reflect on it, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. When you come together, it, everybody's got gifts and it's all in a nice way, enjoyable chaos and it must all be done for building up others. And there's, so there's exegetical reasons in the terms of corporate worship. But more so, I think there's exegetical reasons just to, just to when you, sometimes you believe things because they open your eyes to truths that you might not have seen if you didn't believe them. So rather than, so I'm going to do Romans 8 in a second, kind of, and I say do Romans 8 deliberately. I do it in a particular way. But when you do Romans 8, you realize, wow, 
the reformed and charismatic aspects of me are illuminating this text in ways that I don't think it would be open to me if I didn't have those two emphases. If I just had one, I would miss it. If I had the other, I might miss it. As a result of all of that I've been saying, brothers, there, God is not angry with you anymore if you are in Christ Jesus because the Spirit's life within you has liberated you from the law of sin and death which held you captive. And God has done in Christ what the flesh wasn't able to do because the, it was weakened by sin, but by sending his own Son to look just like you and to live just like you, he was able to condemn sin in the flesh of Jesus Christ so that you now might be liberated to serve and fulfill all that the law was trying to do when you live according to the Spirit. If you live according to the flesh, you set your minds on fleshly things. If you live according to the Spirit, spiritual things, and that's fine. But if you set the mind on the flesh, you're going to die. If you set your mind on the Spirit, you're going to live. There's only two ways to live, and you've got that choice. And the mind that's set on the flesh is just angry with God all the time and in rebellion against Him. But if you're, you can't submit to God. But if you're in the Spirit, which you are, and if you aren't in the Spirit, then you're not even in Christ. I don't know what, you, what the category would be to be a non-Spirit lived-in person. It just doesn't exist. You only can be a Christian if the Holy Spirit lives in you. Otherwise, you're not a believer. But if Christ is in you, the body's dead, and you knew that already, but the Spirit's life and producing righteousness. And when that's true, you know that the Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead is going to raise you. You know you're safe forever. Do you see how the... The reformed charismatic reading just comes, and you think, oh yeah, he's doing jumping between the two of them. So brothers, we are not in slavery or in debt to the flesh to live that way. If you live that way, you'll die. But if by the Spirit you continually put to death all the things that the flesh wants you to do, you're going to live. It's going to be glorious. All who are led like that by the Spirit of God are sons of God. To be a son of God or a daughter of God is to be somebody who hears what the Spirit is saying and follows them everywhere and does everything he does. And everything he tells them to do. Because you didn't receive a slave spirit, but you received a child spirit, and an adoption spirit. So within your heart, bubbling up, goes, Abba, Dad, Father, I love, I love you. I love being your child. I'm so safe. I'm so loved. I'm your friend. I'm your child. What a privilege it is. And yet, the sufferings of this present world keep at us, even though that's true. And I don't think those sufferings, by the way, are in any way worth comparing with the glory that's coming. There's the glory that is going to drown all of those things. So you go, what the heck was that? Sufferings? I don't remember those. They were trivialized, utterly relativized by this astonishing glory that's coming. And the creation, you know, is waiting out there. You look and see every one of those leaves, trees, in some way is on the edge of its on the edge of its seat, going, when, 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 when will it come? It's waiting for the day when it's going to be liberated from bondage to decay. I don't know about you, I don't look outside and think, oh, they look very in bondage to decay, but they are, because one day they're going to be set free from all of the shackles that hold them back from being as fully tall or green or rich or beautiful or blue or whatever it is as they're meant to be. But right now, Paul says, that's not just them, but us as well. All of us, we're waiting, saying, come on, the adoption of sons is coming, and I'm not there yet. I'm waiting for redemption of my body and of their body in the entire world because at the moment creation's like a woman in labor it's, oh, oh, it's just like excruciating pain just going come on come on life is coming ha, ah, life is it's coming it's coming it's coming look there it is this beautiful new life that's come out from within the bowels of the old and here one day we're all going to look and say that was worth it yes this was painful it was degraded it was awful it was corrupt but look at this beautiful new world that's come out from within and we haven't seen it yet but we wait with patience and it, while we do the spirit 
is helping us in our weakness. He's standing with us saying, we don't even know what to pray for, for goodness sake. We're looking and going, how do I look at this corrupted world with this knowledge of this Abba Father glorious spirit within me? How do I pray? And the spirit says, I will help you with that. And he comes alongside in our weakness and he says, okay, and I'm going to groan for you. I'm going to stand with you as you call out for the reality you know is coming to become reality now. And we know that while we're doing that, and the Spirit is interceding with us along according to the will of God. We are also mindful of God's sovereignty over all things, that he will work all things together for good for those who love him. Every single thing. Not a thing that has happened ever is not going to be swallowed up in life in a way that makes everybody go, ah, I can see what you were doing there. I can see it. The reason we know it's going to be true for all who loved him is because every single person that he predestined, he also, that he foreknew, he also predestined to become just like Jesus. And when the sovereign God has made a declaration like that, every single person he predestined has been justified, already declared in the right. Although we haven't even got to the final judgment seat yet, but we already know what the verdict is. And every single one of those is going to get glorified. And in response to that kind of truth, if God is for us, who can be against us? Who's going to look and say, oh, no, he, he's given us his own son. Oh, I don't think he's going to give us all things as well. Are you kidding me? His son, all things. Which do you think costs more? His son is worth far more than all things. So you know he's going to give you that if he's already given you this. And so we're able to wait with an expectation and a joy that means nobody is going to be able to bring any charge against someone who is chosen by God. You just cannot do it. The devil will come up and say, oh, by the way, don't you know? He said, this is an elect child of God. What are you talking about? Get out of here. That's not the way it works. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Not even those sufferings that you're so aware of and that you look at in creation out the window. You look in your own life. You look in your own community. None of those things. Tribulation, that's not bigger than the love of Christ. Distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword. We know that's coming because it says so in the Psalms. All day we're considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Oh, death all day. But it doesn't matter because in all of those things, we are super conquerors. We are going to overcome in every single one of them. And I'm certain that even death and life, past, present, angels, demons, future, but nothing in all creation ever will separate us from the love of God that's in Jesus Christ our Lord. It's good, isn't it? And you think... Now, you can read Romans 8 a bit like that if you don't have a Reformed theology or a Charismatic theology, but I think it helps to have both. because of, Do you see the stresses and the emphases on both the sovereign preservation of God and the gift of the Spirit in the here and now, not just assuring us that we'll get there, but actually making us experientially, prayerfully, adoptedly aware all the time and leading us day to day in such a way that we are. Number five, historical reasons. So this is, um, I don't know, I, when I first read, I think I first encountered the argument that the re, that Reformed tradition over here, Charismatic tradition over here, and the Reformers all thought spiritual gifts were for nutters, and the spiritual gifts people all thought Reformed theology were for nutters. I came across that argument probably through B.B. Warfield, but mediated via even systematic theology chapters in Grudem and Burkhoff and people like that who were saying, well, really the historical tradition has just separated these out. And the explanation is kind of simple-ish, I think. The reformers were trying to, trying to preach their gospel in a context where the whole of Europe was believing that magic and miracles could, were pretty much interchangeable and that there were just continually odd little bits of bone and relic that might heal anybody. And the reformers were quite insistent, no, 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 the word is what does the power and we don't need this sort of 
extraneous healing miracles to be a little distraction sideshow. And we also don't believe that God continues to speak now through the agency of the church because that's what the Roman Catholic Church was saying that was giving them such a hard time with, who knows, indulgences or whatever else. So, you know, the Reformation history, you think, okay, it's obvious in a way why the Reformers might have staked out their ground against what we might now think of as charismatic Christianity. But as I dug into it more, I think I just became more aware that the way I'd heard that story had been really overcooked. And that actually, that was true almost more in the charismatics I knew than in the reform guys I knew. So the reform guys, some of them, were saying, oh, no, no, the Reformation came and it's incompatible with healings and spiritual gifts today. But I found that that case was banged even, that drum was banged even harder by the charismatics because for a totally different reason. The reform guys are saying, you guys have deviated from the true faith, therefore you're out. The charismatics are going, we've deviated from the true faith. Yabu sucks to you, you're all dead and boring anyway. <laughs> and actually, so they're both signing on to the same historical polarity that I don't actually, I subsequently discovered isn't really there. And you do this if you read Augustine. And I, I'm just, I didn't, I was just excited about being able to talk about Augustine, but you, you, who isn't, right? Um, but I just, it was just so interesting to me how you read, Augustine is reformed before his time, about a thousand years before his time, on grace and predestination and sovereignty and so on. And it makes a lot of Catholics very cross with him. But he's so charismatic before his time as well. This is a, I'm just going to, there's loads and loads of examples. Book 20 in the City of God is simply called Of Miracles which were, wrought before, which were Wrought That the World Might Believe in Christ and Which Have Not Ceased Since the, since the World Believed. That's what, so it's basically, an anti-cessationist punch on the nose is the title of chapter 20. Of chapter 20 of, of, sorry, of book um, do you know I'm confused? I don't know if it's book 20 or chapter 20. I've, I've simply written down XX, which is foolish. But anyway, you can look it up, and I will. Um, of miracles which were wrought that the world might believe in Christ and which haven't ceased since the world believed. And I was thinking, so this is August. And this is the most quoted guy by far in, for the next thousand years of Christianity. So this is not an incidental figure. This is not, oh, you found a funny father who says something funny. This is like, no, this is Augustine. So we take that seriously. Here's just one of the stories, which is one of my favorites. And this, he, this is, he writes in the city of God. In the same city of Carthage lived Innocentia, a very devout woman of the highest rank in the state. She had cancer in one of her breasts, a disease which, as physicians say, is incurable. Ordinarily, therefore, they either amputate and so separate from the body the member on which the disease is seized, or that the patient's life may be prolonged a little, though death is inevitable, even if delayed, they abandon all remedies following the advice of Hippocrates. This is the lady we speak of, and she'd been advised by a skillful physician who was intimate with her family, and she betook herself to God alone by prayer. On the approach of Easter, she was instructed in a dream, charismatic, bing, to wait for the first woman that came out of the baptistry after being baptized, and to ask her to make the sign of Christ upon her sore. She did, and was immediately cured. Bing! When she told the physician what had happened, he said to have replied, with religious politeness, although with a contemptuous tone, you know those guys, right? Religious politeness, but a contemptuous tone. And an expression which made her fear he would utter some blasphemy against Christ. I thought you were going to make some great discovery to me. She, shuddering at his indifference, quickly replied, What great thing was it for Christ to heal a cancer who raised one who had been dead for four days? That's in the city of God. And there's many, many examples like that. You read that chapter, it's just full of them. So you've got actually a very strong, explicitly charismatic theology that healing is alive for now. And you read, if you read the Confessions, or the way Augustine tells his 
his, his um, new birth story is effectively reformed charismatic. He's continually saying the sovereignty of God was drawing me, and I didn't know it, but he was, and he was orchestrating everything so that I'd come. And then he fills in all kinds of charismatic stories in there. So he's just talking with his friend, and then his friend says something, and he thinks, oh, wow, that's interesting. I hadn't really seen that. And then he's, somebody comes up with a prof- sort of what we would call a prophetic word and says, you need to listen out for this. And then he goes and he has a dream, and he thinks of something else, which is, again, the Spirit leading him further to, to God. And then he's sitting there and somebody says, hey, can you hear that sound? And he listens out the window and these children are singing, take up and read. And then he picks up the Bible and it happens to fall open at Romans 13 and he repents of his sins and becomes a believer. It's a pretty charismatic story. And so you you read, and that's just Augustine, there's many other examples. And as as we read history, we actually get that the division some of us have maybe taught, I don't know, I have in the past, between, well, of course, there's the Bible guys who think the Spirit's a bit weird and the Spirit guys who think the Bible can hold them back. So actually, read through church history. There is a very strong case for a both and here of reformed charismatic. I mean, if you, you want more, you read, yeah, read Aquinas. Read Luther on the devil. Right? Luther's, theology, Luther's demonology is far more robust and frightening and scary than any modern charismatic I've come across. I put Luther against Austin. I mean, Luther against Austin. Luther would eat him in several ways. But one of the ways he'd eat him, just on demonology. I mean, it's just his theology of the reality of spiritual forces and beings in his day. Uh, I, again, I'm a fan of the Heidelberg Catechism at the moment. Just the amount it says about anointing. Why are you called a Christian? Well, because I'm in Christ and I share his anointing. That's what it is. I'm, I've got the same spirit he had. That's, how I be, that's what it means to be a Christian. And on and on we go. Spurgeon and the, his words of knowledge in the middle of sermons and so on. So f- kind of forget what a lot of the Reformed guys and Charismatic guys say. You don't have to choose between these two. Historically, there's a lot greater overlap between them than we think. We've got not much time left, so I'm just going to do the final two. Sixth kind of reason why I'm a reformed charismatic, pastoral reasons. So take a subject like healing. Right? And I know PJ spoke and PJ really helped me several years ago speaking on this out after his cancer. Pastoral reasons. When you have a subject like healing, we have there's two very easy trenches to fall into, and there's people in your church who will be nudging you into them all the time, aren't they? So it's very and if I, if I take the sort of, if I just allow the two extremes to be the guy who says, no, all suffering and sickness is a gift from God, and you've got the other guy who said, actually, no suffering or healing is a gift from God, and I'm trying to stand in the middle as a reformed charismatic going, well, God is sovereign over everything, nothing happens without his permission, and sometimes, if I read scripture, God has orchestrates things that are painful and brings them into my life for the sake of future good. And that's almost inescapable. You read Hebrews or Corinthians or as anything, Joseph's story, Job, goodness knows, right? loads of examples. But you've also got people who will push that line so hard that they will almost imply actually every kind of sickness. Praying for healing is, well, God probably doesn't want to do it because why have you got the thing in the first place? And the odd thing about that kind of school is they would say, no, this is a gift from God. And then they go to the doctor. You think, well, if it's a gift from God, you shouldn't be taking painkillers for it. You shouldn't be taking anything, right? Because it's a gift from God. So they show they don't actually believe it, right? They show, I, I want to be better. This is not for now, but I'm going to go and live as if it was for now and as if it's a gift from God, but inconsistently. On the other side, you've got people who would act or talk as if the only reason why you're ever sick is because you or somebody else or the rest of the church haven't believed enough or even just... What sounds, ambig- sounds like it's leaving them a sense of mystery, but is actually putting the weight fairly squarely on you, we just say, it's never God. It's like, well, I kind of know what that means it is then, and it's just I know you don't want to tell me that. And so you've got both of those edges 
And of course, within all that, you've got, I love the, love the even way, I don't know what Paul's thorn was. It might not have been a sickness. Probably wasn't in some ways. It doesn't matter. It's more, how does Paul cope with gifts he doesn't want? He says, three times I pleaded with the Lord, take it away, take it away, take it away. And you don't imagine he did it like that, right? Three times I spent three sessions of fervent prayer about it, three maybe months or whatever of fervent prayer about it. And then he said, okay, I heard the voice of God. My grace is sufficient. Okay, I will be content then with my weaknesses. He doesn't swing. He doesn't say, oh, it's a gift of God. He says, I don't want it. But then he doesn't go, because I don't want it, therefore it can't have been of God. He says, okay, I'll live with that. It's a messenger of Satan. And it's been given to me in order that I might flourish and grow and not be too conceited. And I can learn to live with the fact that God and Satan are somehow behind what's happening here. Jesus, when he meets that woman, this daughter of Abraham whom Satan has bound, he doesn't say, ah, she's sick. That's probably a gift from the Father. Let's leave it there. Comes in and says, she's a daughter of Abraham. What is the work of Satan doing in her life? Heals her. And so our assumption is that's what sickness is. And again, PJ's example, which I thought was so helpful, Daniel's friends, which is the best example of this, isn't it? We know, O King, that our God is able to save us and will save us. So we're not doing just the passive, God is able to heal, but he won't. We're saying God is able to heal and he will or deliver us. And even if he doesn't, we're not bowing down to that flipping statue. And that double whammy of expectation mingled with belief and trust so characteristic. And that's just the one example, but pastorally, I think, how would I help people if I genuinely believe that all sickness was given by God and was permanent in that sense? And how would I help them if I believe that none of it ever was? Because then how would I have a theology of death? How would I cope with the bereaved? This is simply, this is all in the lost column when someone dies. How do you do a funeral if you actually consistently follow through that theology? And say, we lost, guys. Let's maybe better luck next time. Say, no, 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 no. We hold to both the sovereign agency of God in all things and his desire to break in and destroy the works of the devil in the here and now, knowing that they won't always happen. Seventh type of reason, missional reasons. And this I got from my friend Andy McCulloch, who is planting a church in Istanbul at the moment and has had all kinds of challenges, if you know him. It's been difficult and yet really fruitful. They've got a church of over 100 now, 60-plus percent Turkish converts so like, this is like proper, this isn't like, hey, it's white people having a meeting in Turkey. This is no, we are seriously reaching Turks. And he's an amazing, I mean, seriously, cross-cultural mission. This, I, I've learned more about contextualization from him than, than anybody. Um, and he just said it in a kind of throw. He was making one of those sort of, here's 18 things I've learned while planting a church. And I was like, I want to write this all down. He just said, oh, when you're on mission like this, it's great being reformed and charismatic because being reformed makes you persevere for the long haul. Because being reformed is like the Acts 18, stay where you are, I've got many people in this city. I've already identified people I'm going to save, so you stay there and don't move. Being reformed makes me persevere for the long haul. He said, and being charismatic makes me believe for sudden breakthrough. And if I was just reformed, I might think, wow, this is long haul, and I'm not really expecting any drama. If I was just charismatic, I would think, right, breakthrough, 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 breakthrough. Oh, the breakthrough didn't come, we better go home. And being reformed and charismatic means I'd stay there, come what may, and I'm calling out to God regularly for come and bring, come on, smash through this. So he stays and he just preaches and he witnesses. And then he says, let's get Rambabu in to do some healing and then we'll see what God does. He's that kind of person because he's got both. And so I think there's missional reasons to be reformed and charismatic well, as well. Personally, theologically, devotionally, exegetically, historically, pastorally, and missionally. I think being a reformed charismatic in the slightly modified sense in which I've defined it today uh, is a good idea. And I hope in some ways it's helpful for you to have heard why I'm there at least. We've got, any, we've got, I think, a few minutes for questions.
We are going to finish at 12, bang on, and we'll have a, just a, a very strict five-minute break because we're then having lunch at one, so we want to have the 55 minutes with Andrew for the second session. So we've got 10 minutes of questions, and for the sake of sound and recording and stuff, I'll run around with the mic. So if you've got a question, Benisi. Thanks, Andrew. Great talk. Um, you said very briefly that um, because of your personality and gift, you may... Um, naturally have lent mm. towards the reformed side. Yeah. Um, my question is, do you intentionally, because of that default, lean towards the charismatic intentionally to bring that balance? And if so, what does that look like in your oh, life? That's a great question. Um, the answer is I need to, and sometimes I do, and sometimes I don't. I think the things that... so. So when I'm doing it, I think where it, where it works well, I think, is because of the movement I'm part of, I've got lots of context to be with brothers and sisters who are better at that than I am. And so and I, I seek out those friendships. And I, so many of you know Simon Holly, and Simon and I are really good friends. We run a training course together, and I really seek out not just time with him, but input to, to, part, to speak in his church, have him speak into ours, maintain as strong a friendship as I can. With and not that it's hard for me, but as in work quite hard at making sure that we're connected because I know I need to lean more that way, and he's very, very good at it, and is very helpful and discerning in the way he mod moderates it really in, in the context of the, the church and the movement. And so I want to pursue this. So when I do it well, it's through friendship and probably through naturally through prayer. I think probably, although my prayer life is not what I want it to be, but when it's going when it's well going well, I think it's got quite a charismatic edge. Where where it doesn't go well. Um, is often in the things I read because I find, I find myself, <laughs> I've tried um, to read more people who are more well down the charismatic spectrum from me naturally, and I, I just, I, I, I can't do it. I, I, I've tried a lot, and there might be great examples that I haven't come across, but there's often so much. It's not just there's bad suffering. It's just I haven't actually found very good suffering. I found stuff by charismatic scholars and thinkers and thoughtful people. But people who are way down at the sort of charismatic end, I find I engage with the world a lot through reading. And because that's how I learn and process, I don't just mean books, I mean online and so on, that I find it quite difficult to get a, feel like a balanced diet of reading that is edifying. Because I find myself getting annoyed with a few pages. And I think, oh, this, just, this is just... Eddie Izzard has this character, the comedian Eddie Izzard has this character he calls him Captain Non Sequitur, who's just continually making up statements that join next to each other and don't really follow from each other. And I find sometimes I'm reading books like that and it just makes This is like it's been written by Captain Non Sequitur. I don't understand how that follows from that. And that's, that's where I'm not so good at it. But I think the community side of it and the prayer side of it and worship, because I love, and corporate worship is just such a joy. So. Um, so I think for me, it's often about going places and spending time with people and going to events where that draws that out of me. I have to do that, because if I don't do that, I'm, I'm in trouble, because I'll become hardened and cynical, actually. That's my danger. I think you alluded to it kind of earlier on in your talk, but I wanted to know what your theology was regarding the second experience mm. of baptism of the Spirit. I did indeed allude to it early on. So, so I think that baptism in the Spirit and receiving the Spirit are not technical terms, would be my view. So I don't think that, I think in the, the assuming that the reform narrative stereotypically is baptism in the Spirit is like a term for what happens at conversion, and the charismatic narrative is baptism in the Spirit is a term for what happens at a second encounter, which might happen at conversion, but often, and if we're honest, usually doesn't. 
I think my view would be more of a third wave view, which is that it's not a technical term for either of those things, that actually being born again is a drenching in the spirit in a dramatic way. You get given a new heart. It's a complete saturation in the spirit. But so is the first dramatic power encounter you have, and so should multiple subsequent experiences be. And so when we're... The nice thing about that, it sounds like a fudge, and in some ways it is, but I'm persuaded it's a biblical one because I think we have all received the spirit and yet we all need to receive the spirit, I believe. I think be filled with the spirit and yet Peter... Obviously, they were all filled with the Spirit, and then he's filled with the Spirit again in Acts 4 and again in Acts 4. So because of that fudge, I think I'm able, when somebody says, right, let's pray for anyone here who wants to be baptized in the Spirit, I'm like, I can go and pray for them. Because that's exactly what I want them to be drenched in the Spirit again. I just, I'm, I would probably differ over whether I thought that word should ever be applied to what had happened to them before. So what I don't ever do is say, if you are a Christian and you know Jesus and you have never been baptized in the Spirit, let me pray for you. I, I don't tend to talk like that because theologically I'm not persuaded that's ever true. Um, but I'm very happy being part of a movement that broadly does. And so it hasn't most of the time, except when I was more pedantic, believe it or not, I used to be more pedantic than I am now. I used to make more of a fuss about it, but in the last 10, 15 years it hasn't been an issue. Um, so that's, that's my, broadly my view on it. One of the benefits of ageing, Andrew's become much nicer than he used to be. <laughs> <laughs> Glass houses. <laughs> Thanks, Andrew, for a great talk. Um, could you maybe, in my readings, I've encountered people who read Augustine and, say, Spurgeon, and they would say that those experiences are extraordinary providences of God, mm. not charismatic pursuits. Mm. Could you perhaps talk into that? Yeah, I think there's a slight you say potato, I say potato thing. Uh, it's the other way around, I presume. Yeah. Um, when, when it comes to some of those, so I don't think Spurgeon was a charismatic as we are. I don't think either of them were charismatic as we understand it. I'm not I'm making that case. I'm saying that I think that the idea that miracles haven't ceased from, the, from when the world believed through till today is a very charismatic claim, although Augustine's language for it and expectation would be different. But I think several things about the story that I even read, let alone the others, indicate to me that it's not simply that he believes miracles happen and God sometimes does them. Because the institution of the church would be the way you would expect a Catholic to receive healing. And, of course, he's talking about things that are explicitly not like that. He's talking about people who get dreams and then somehow suddenly see God speaking to them through, not through necessarily even through the priest, but through somebody else. And so that, that sense of expectation that miracles will be wrought through God's people more generally, I think, is a very charismatic thing. I think Spurgeon didn't call them that, because um, I think he would have been very worried. If he'd said, I am prophesying now... Prophesying could have meant preaching, as it often in some reform circles it still does, but it would probably have been heard in his way to mean God just spoke to me and I saw it. Whereas what he tends to do is just, he'll have a word of what we would call a word of knowledge or a prophecy, but he won't attribute it as that. He'll just do it and won't really. And, and I mean, some of the, one of the most interesting cessationists I know, I like reading, is Doug Wilson, who's very cessationist and yet will still concede almost all the things that. I talk about happen is just he'll call them strange happenings or think and I just think I don't know why you would I think I don't know why you would do that and I think in the end it's just exegetical conviction that that Paul does I think Paul does talk about the cessation of the gifts it's just he says they're going to happen when we see him face to face so in the meantime or the last days the last days haven't stopped in the last days I will pour out my spirit on all flesh sons and daughters prophesy and then after a few years they won't anymore that's not what it says. And so I think in a way we're both taking our theological frameworks, looking at miracles and saying, what are we going to call that? And I don't mind in the end if somebody says, well, we can call it providences 
unless it means that they then don't seek them. But I think James 5 is saying, you, what's the point in the elders gathering to pray for people and anointing them with oil if they don't think it's going to happen? And, um, so I, I, I do completely say, please don't hear me as saying something I'm not saying. I'm not saying they would have sided with modern charismatics today, and I've not got evidence that those guys I'm saying spoke in tongues, for instance. But I think often the difference of languages makes it look like a much bigger disagreement than it actually is. Um, and I think in the end it just comes down to exegesis. One more. So in terms of church planting, um, you want to partner with people who are reformed, you want to partner with people who are charismatic, but you could easily get stuck into constant cycles of fighting. How do you do that? Well, <laughs> ask somebody who plants a church. Um, <laughs> I'm sure, where are you? Where? Newcastle. Newcastle. Newcastle, yeah, join advance, yeah. I mean, we are, it depends, I suppose, under whose umbrella you're, you're sitting. Um, so I think we've been really helped by, in the UK, we've been really helped by Terry's presence because reform people hear and preach the Bible and they think, well, we don't agree with you about this, but my goodness, you believe the same doctrines we do. And we've been really helped, actually, by Stuart and Nathan and Lou and people who've written songs that have made people go, well, you, you seem to believe our doctrine and just enjoy it more than we do, which has really helped. Um, and, and yet, Terry's connected with all of the... So in, our, in the UK, I think that's actually been much easier. If you, most people who know who he is, if you say we're with Terry, they might still disagree with you about a whole bunch of things, but... They, they're not, on the reformed and charismatic side, most people can see he's one of the good guys. And I think Terry's massive influence for us in the UK, is, and I'm sure globally as well, has been that that's the kind of guy he is. I, I couldn't speak to other contexts where he's either not known or where there's much more work to do in establishing that. There are obviously lots of reformed charismatics in the US, um, but they would more be at the reform, they'd actually more be reformed continuationist in many cases, in the, in the sense I'm using it, where they believe the gifts continue, but we had a... I'll name drop this, but we had a really great chat with Piper about this. We were saying, why don't you pursue prophecy in the church? And he said, because basically, I believe it's for today. But if I, if I really push the church into that, I'd have to talk about nothing else. I just don't think I can move the church to there without that becoming the major focus of ministry. I think there's more important stuff to talk about. But I think people like him nevertheless provide a lot of theological cover for people who say, well, I'm theologically, I'm actually very much... D.A. Carson and I, on the gifts of the Spirit, like I'm exactly where he is. I think, I hope, in my life and my church, we pursue them more. But I agree with you. People like that sort of provide an umbrella that we can sort of sit under and peek out the end. Um, and then the same would be true on the charismatic side because of the, the way we tend to do church. And again, the people we're friends with. So often it's names that provide a sense of, oh, you're not a complete flake um, in, in the UK. But I couldn't speak to what that's like elsewhere. And I don't mean Newcastle is elsewhere. <laughs> Brilliant. Thank you, Andrew.